Former U.S. Secretary of Housing and Urban Development Henry Cisneros has spent his career as an advocate for the Latino community, and his optimism is contagious. I just have great faith in humankind, but especially in American humankind. That optimism comes from a lifetime of experience. In the 1980s, Cisneros was 33 years old and the newly elected mayor of San Antonio. That was only the second time a Latino was the mayor of a major American city and the first time in almost 150 years. We sat down with Secretary Cisneros, who shared how San Antonio's welcoming culture can be a model for the nation. He also explains why this generation will be better off than the last and even shares a personal story about how and why he helped a DACA recipient. All this and more next. I'm Andrew Kaufman, and this is The Strategist, presented by the George W. Bush Institute. What happens when you cross the 43rd president, late-night sketch comedy, and compelling conversation? The Strategist, a podcast born from the word strategery, which was coined by SNL and embraced by the George W. Bush administration. We highlight the American spirit of leadership and compassion through thought-provoking conversations. And we're reminded that the most effective leaders are the ones who laugh. Thank you so much, Secretary Cisneros, for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Andrew, glad to be with you. And we're also with Laura Collins, who is our director in the Bush Institute SMU Economic Growth Initiative. Laura, thank you for helping out today. Thanks, Andrew. Uh, Mr. Secretary, you hail from one of my favorite cities in Texas, San Antonio. Can you give us a couple words about why you think San Antonio is so special and what's so special about it to you? Well, I'm glad you like it. I hear frequently from people that San Antonio is their their favorite place. Um, And we have a kind of a a little mantra in San Antonio that says, every Texan has two homes where they live today and San Antonio. (laughs) So I'm glad to hear that maybe that applies in your case a bit. Um, What makes it special, I think, aside from the blessing of topography and the river walk and um, the history that has been maintained, so it doesn't have the feel of, you know, glass structures and, and, and canyons of modern buildings, but uh, for the longest time, uh, we built in the local native stone, so it has a kind of warmth, and we describe it as a kind of human-scale development, so people are not dwarfed by traditional urban settings, and it's just different in that respect. So those are, I think, some of the things that make it special. But what really, truly makes it special is the kind of consensus that we've built around uh, integration of cultures, uh, around a tolerance and understanding. And so there is, I think it's fair to say, a San Antonio culture that is different from American culture generally or even Texas culture. It's San Antonio, and it's uniquely so. What made it? Where did that come from? Well, I think it comes from people living together for a long time. You know, it was an indigenous place originally. In fact, uh, the original name was Yanaguana, given by the Native Americans who lived there for 500 years before the Spaniards ever arrived. And Yanaguana meant the place of the peaceful water. So what we enjoy now, the Riverwalk, was a peaceful watering place for Native American migratory tribes for years. And you still find, uh, when construction is done along the river, pottery shards and, uh, you know, uh, where there were uh, campfires and... And so forth. So it, 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 it's had the indigenous period, the Spanish period, which left a great influence. The five Spanish missions there were just named 
uh, national UNESCO heritage sites. Uh, of course, it was part of Mexico uh, in that period after Mexican independence and then uh, became an important part of Texas, was the largest city in Texas until the 1930s when Dallas uh, supplanted it and then later Houston. We are now the second largest city in the state in, in, in city population. But um, uh, so the, there's, a, there's a real sense of people having lived together for a long time and then we've worked at it. Uh, on my watch as mayor, I never appointed a city commission that wasn't tripartite, traditional Texan, uh, Latino, and African-American. We went to great lengths to create a sense of um, consensus on policy and and mutual respect. Let me close just by saying the uh, theme of the World's Fair that was held there in 1968 called Hemisphere was the confluence of cultures. And so that's been just an important part of our DNA. Yeah, I think that really describes San Antonio quite well. And it's such a it's such a quintessentially American city in that way, and that there is that confluence of cultures. Well, we think it's the quintessential future American city, because not all American cities are that way or have been that way. But um, uh, our recent mayor, uh, Julian Castro, uh, basically used to say, this is what America will look like in the future. So it's more kind of aspirational and pointing to the future in that respect. Well, and what, what you were describing, too, you were mayor in the early 80s, 80s. all of the 80s. So was that really ahead of its time? It was at the end of a period of great tumult and division and confusion about who we were and where we were going. Uh, San Antonio was, until 1930, as I said, the largest city in Texas. And then it's lost its position because it became kind of a place that was very provincial, conservative, and uh, uh, did not keep up with the petroleum developments in Houston, the banking developments in Dallas, and kind of fell behind. And there was a time when the leadership of the city actually was selling the fact that it was poor as a reason for a business to come because there would be low wages that, and, and they were opposed to newcomers and opposed to unions and, and, uh, they had a, a pretty rigid power structure. So when I ran for mayor in 1981, uh, the traditional model of a San Antonio mayor was a 60-ish man who had punched all the buttons of the Chamber of Commerce, right. et cetera. And here I come as a 33-year-old Hispanic university professor, pretty different than the model. And, 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 and I came with ideas. I had, had training as a White House fellow in Washington, Kennedy School at Harvard and such, as well as Texas A&M. Uh, <laughs> For the Aggies out there. <laughs> Can't forget and, that part. Well, it was an important part of my formation because A&M uh, had a tradition of being the place that trained the people who do things like build roads and do the agricultural work. A&M, agricultural and mechanical, it was the land grant. So there was a real tradition since the depression that this was the place where you know you you actually had the people who worked built engineered you know constructed and that's an important part of my view of how the world works in any event um the uh uh when, when i got elected we really went out of our way to create that sense of consensus so some of it is natural and some of it is encouraged. Right. But it's become the dominant way of doing business in San Antonio. And as I said, uh, you know, the Anglo San Antonians love 
Mexican food. <laughs> and As they should. And Latinos love country and western music. So, I mean, it's just a real, a real mix. <laughs> it's the way it should be. You uh, mentioned a little bit that you were mayor. You were actually a 33-year-old mayor. Correct. If a 33-year-old walked up to you today and said, I'm going to run for mayor, what would you tell them? I'd say go for it. Um, we've had a number of young mayors uh, in the period since I was. And uh, it's a great thing. We have young members of the city council. In fact, I would say that um, from what I have seen today, the, the generational gap is greater because of what technology has given young people oh, in terms of tools and understandings and access to information instantly that older generations don't have. And so in some ways, you know, a 33-year-old today is probably what a 50-year-old was in the past in terms of just knowledge and access and experience because technology makes that so. And uh, every once in a while, somebody will come up to me and you know, complain about, you know, what they want to accomplish, but they haven't because they're too young because they're 33. And I say, <laughs> by the time he was 33, Alexander the Great had conquered all of the known world. And by the time he was 33, Jesus Christ had built a religion that's lasted for 2,000 years. So don't tell me you're too young. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm older Wait. than 33, so you're already making me feel inadequate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what, have, what have I gotten done? Um, I want to hit back on this generational point, though, because um, I'm a millennial, and while I feel like I haven't had to delay a lot of life milestones, there are data that suggest that millennials are not going to be as well off as their parents were. And how do you, you've lived the American dream. You're, you've had a, an incredible career and lots of interesting experiences. How do we make sure that millennials and the generation coming after and successive generations are able to live the American dream as well? Well, it's a big question with a lot of policy dimensions to it. I mean, we have to continue to uh, keep the country strong economically because that is the juice that that fuels yes. everything. And then we have to harness that growth and make it work for people in education uh, through uh, good housing policy that allows people to buy a home instead of having so much of our housing stock unaffordable. And we have to focus on uh, keeping uh, a, a fluid system, a class system, so we're not overly rigid and, and lock people into roles, including spatial segregation and those sorts of things. Um, but I would, I, 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 I frankly would quarrel with the premise okay. that uh, this generation may not be as well off as previous generations, because really, fundamentally, that's up to us. We can, we can, we can. That's something we can determine. And I think we're a progressive nation. Uh, that, you know, is intent on creating a better life. And I personally believe we will find the ways to do that. We're too ambitious, impatient, driven, um, uh, able to, you know, exploit opportunities. Um, and the there's just huge opportunities in the world. So when I see young people who create companies uh, you know, without ever having gone to college or uh, like Microsoft, Gates and 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 uh, Facebook, et cetera. And then I see young people today who are running their companies and they're on top of the world at 30 years of age. You know, I, I, I know that's not the masses and we've got to do a great, much better job of creating a broader 
economy. But I think we will get there. I'm optimistic, and I think the American progression that says better health, longer lifespans, more accomplishment, higher incomes, better quality of life is alive and, 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 and progressing. Yeah, you really you mentioned that entrepreneurial spirit spirit that I think is really important to us as a nation. I think there's something fundamentally happening with your generation on entrepreneurship. Less and less people want to work in corporate settings and less and less want to be, you know, sort of cogs in the machine. They want to accomplish something. And, you know, my reading of, of, the, of the younger generation is not only are they very smart and well-educated, and well prepared, but they are unsatisfied in being pigeonholed. And you put all of that together and unleash that spirit, powerful things will be done. All kinds of, I mean, I'm the one who's confused, not your generation. <laughs> when I look at the names of new companies and what they do in cities just in Texas, and it's like, Hey, that the ship's left. It's gone, you know? <laughs> well, what's so great about this generation too is when you, when you look at, a lot of these companies that are forming and the old models that you create this successful company and then you build your, your corporate social responsibility department and you, right. and you try and give back. And so many of these young companies now from day one, they're committed to not to a making a profit and being successful, but also giving back in some way. And that's a part of the mission from day one. Well, yeah, you're unique. right. You're exactly right. I meant to say that earlier. So I'm glad you picked up on it, but the truth of the matter is many of the companies are formed because there is a social need mm -hmm. to be met, exactly. right? And that's, and frankly, uh, Dr. Toyota once told me, you know, San Antonio has one of the largest Toyota plants in the world. And we, I worked closely with Dr. Toyota directly, the founder's grandson. And he said, the Toyota way is find a need and then meet it and you will be successful economically right. as well as yeah. uh, performing a social function. So when they determined that we needed to have cars that were not purely internal combustion, they weren't able to get all the way to an electric car in the first step, but they got halfway with the Prius and they met the market's desire for that product. And it's been a very successful product and they will go the next step to all electric. So, uh, it's an example of what the way a lot of young people think today. And I think that is one of the, when I see polls and surveys of what millennials think, that's always one of the first points that comes up. We have a very special population of millennials and younger in the United States, and a very big portion of them live in the state of Texas. And you have some personal experience with one of them, a dreamer. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, you took in a dreamer for a number of years. Yes can, yes. can you tell me a little bit about that? Well, it was an interesting thing. I, I uh, got a call from a professor at a community college in East Texas who said, I have a young man who's written a historic essay, submitted it. I submitted it, the professor said, into a statewide competition, and he won the best history paper award for the state of Texas. And it's about you. It's about your work as mayor, and it's about... Um, the, the underlying philosophy of what you were trying to accomplish. And I said, well, that's interesting. I'd love to meet him. I'd love to see the paper. I read it. I said, this is the best piece that's been done on what I tried to do. It had more insight and understood really where I was coming from better than any magazine articles or, or, or major essays that have been written. So I said, I'd love to meet him. And when I met him, I said, uh, they brought him to town. He was in Houston for the award and they drove, he and the professor drove over to San Antonio great professor, 
obviously. I mean, this is a person who cared about the student. So I said, well, you're a very good writer. Uh, what do you want to be, a journalist? Uh, you could be in politics yourself. And he said, I want to be an engineer. I said, well, what are your grades like in science and math? All A's. Where are you going to go to college? Beyond the community college. I don't know. I don't know anything about the next steps. The community college takes me so far. I said, well, if you come to San Antonio, we'll work to get you into UT San Antonio, where I helped create the engineering school. And um, and uh, then uh, I'll help you figure out where you're going to live and such. At what point did you find out he was undocumented? I guess I should back up for those I think listening I knew, that, I think I knew that right don't there, know that what dreamers are. They're undocumented. He told me that he came across the Rio Grande on a tire tread Wow. At six years old with his mother. And they here's the interesting story. They went to Dallas and lived in a very, very uh, crowded, overcrowded housing conditions. His mother worked a full-time job. His father worked a full-time job. One morning on the way to work, an 18-wheeler T-boned the car, killed his mother and a sister in the car. And, he and, his, father, and his father was hurt, had his leg mangled. So he was now disabled. Right. right? Now he can't work. Right. Couldn't work. But they lived in a garage, a a tin garage with a concrete floor, right? And showered at the YMCA, right? But he had straight A's. That's incredible. (laughs) And straight A's through college. So we got him into the, got him into college and, and, and the straight A's continued. In fact, the only time I ever saw him despondent was when he got a B plus in a, in an engineer. And the, and the, and the dean told me he can't do this. Because he hasn't had engineering courses. He's been at community college. He had math and other preparation, but not engineering courses. He's going to have to take five engineering courses a semester. And that's, that's a heavy load. Nobody's ever been able to do that. All A's. When you think about what he was able to accomplish, given his circumstances, and the debate that we have currently about that population and immigration as a whole and the illegal immigration population as a whole... What, now, it, it, what for me, it think? goes beyond anger. It goes beyond, you know, a sense of, of 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 shame that our country would behave this way. It it actually hurts because I've come to so admire that spirit, not just that young man, but that spirit in a number of people that I've met who are the so-called dreamers. They came here with their parents. They're they're driven by the will to succeed. They're smart. They apply themselves. Um, they live by a code that says we, we, we owe back to, to the society and our family. And, uh, and they're, they're just a cut above. They're very, very good. Um, so it's very, very painful to see the human toll that would be uh, uh, it, it imposed upon them if that generation was required to go back to Mexico, where, by the way, there's no more family, there's no more connection, you just drop them on us on the floor of a, I mean, on the street of a city in Mexico and say, make it on your own when we need that talent here. This young man is now an engineer in an automotive plant and, and gets all kinds of quality awards for what he does. We need that talent. 
when when we were preparing for this, Ioana sent around our producer sent around a video of you, and and you start the video by saying this was I think a year or two ago. You start by saying that you're an optimist, and you mentioned earlier that you're an optimist, and and we love optimism just as an organization. We feel like yes, we do. We feel like President Bush is an optimist, and sure. Where does where does your optimism come from? Well, I I'm an optimist because I just have, I'm a student of history, and I see the as Dr. King used to say, the arc of history is long but it bends toward justice. And I think it bends toward human betterment. It bends toward progress. It bends toward better quality of life. And that's been the story of our country. I mean, if this was not a country of optimists, then what in the, how, do, how in the world do you describe people who, you know, weathered an ocean trip to get here to right. cold weather and, and forge uh, communities in the east out of the rocky soil of New England? And how do you describe people who get in a covered wagon and start f- from the east and make their way across St. Louis and out across the Great Plains? You know, this is a country of people who have optimistically built things, right? How do you describe a place like where I went to school at Texas A&M, a land grant which was which was created in, a, in, the, in the Morrill Act of 1862, in the heart of the Civil War, the people said, when it's over, we're going to have to build this country, and we're going to need engineers, and we're going to need teachers, and we're going to need animal husbandress, et cetera. And so they put it, they built a college. And, and what is a college if it's not an act of faith in the future? What's the whole point of the expenditures and the staffing and the preparation if it's not about building a better future? So I just have great faith in humankind but especially in American humankind, <laughs> because I think we're we're just sort of endowed with that sense of um, of, of of extra energy applied to ambition and entrepreneurship and and family and so forth. We've mentioned A&M a couple times now, and um, I'm not an Aggie, but my <laughs> perception from the... I have two questions for you on this. One is one is substantive, one is a little silly. But uh, my perception from the outside is that it is a place that instills um, a sense of service and leadership. I think that's true. Um, how did that inform your public career? Well, very much. Uh, I... Uh, you know, was in a place where everybody around me was headed toward doing practical things, uh, building things. And as I say, the, you know, the engineering, civil engineering department is the people who build the roads in Texas, you know, and the animal husbandress are the people who go out and, 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 and feed us, you know, in the farm and ranch system of Texas. And so it's a very practical kind of place. Um, I was a, uh, junior and it was I was actually a senior in 1968 and that was one of the most tumultuous years in American life Um, the Vietnam War was raging there were protests on the street President Johnson stepped down in April Dr. King was assassinated in Memphis in June Bobby Kennedy was assassinated in Los Angeles the cities were burning and so in my head, knowing that I wanted to be of service, and I thought it would be in some institutional role like the military or the State Department, uh, all of a sudden it sort of became obvious to me this would be a contributing life to be involved in the urban affairs of the country and building our cities and dealing with this issue of how we're going to bring people together. 
And there are very few people who can say, who, who can say they've been as fortunate as I have, which is what I started out to do in college, I've done for the rest of my life, which is over 50 years now of involvement in the same field of building cities and building communities and, and trying to help people advance. So my silly question is, um, A&M has a beautiful mascot named Reveille. Yes. Uh, do you think you could possibly hook us up with the visit? Because I know I love dogs, and I think that would be a big hit here in the office. It depends She's on beautiful. where you went to school. Because I, they, they take real good care of Reveille, and they don't let anybody near her. She would love the <laughs> Reveille would love the native Texas park. Yes, Reveille would love the park we have out here. Lots we'll, of place we'll, to roam. We'll work on it. Okay, thank you. Well, so our, our final question we want to wrap with is, is a little bit on a different track. What is no one talking about that you think they should be talking about in this country? Well, I don't know that no one's talking about it, but I do think we need to do a better job of finding out how we're going to work together, finding the dialogue, finding the language by which we can empathize, put ourselves in other people's shoes, and try to get this country back on a track where uh, we're working together for positive things. Uh, We're so divided at the moment and so just willing to shout at each other across the ramparts. And, uh, uh, you know, everybody holds every uh, one of their their desires closely and then fights for it. And uh, compromise is is no longer our language. Um, And I just think you can't build a society that way. I mean, uh, you can you can. You can win a political battle momentarily, and then you've planted seeds of division that will come back in the next election. Um, we've just kind of lost the sense of how do you build consensus? How do you take 85% of what you want or 75% of what you want instead of absolutely holding out for 100% of what you have to have or think you have to have? So I think we need to you know, seriously talk about the dialogue, the settings, the venues, the systems we're going to use to try to come together as a society. And that, you know, that's why our cities are so important because they are literally the cauldron where people have to live together. And so you you, you find these great divisions on national policy, but you also find people working together to, to improve the local schools or to you know, pass local bond issues or to focus on some local uh, a project like a library or something. And and um, uh, that's why I think our cities are maybe the places where we learn, relearn the civics. Well, yeah, we I mean, to. and you know, the cities are where we touch government more. Absolutely. Absolutely. I used to say, you know, I've, I've worked in Washington and you're a long way from the nation's problems and, or you can escape to Austin as a state representative or state Senator. But if you're a city council member or a local school board member, I mean, you walk out of your office and you're smack in the middle of the problems. I mean, I homelessness was not an abstraction for me because between my office as mayor and my car, I would encounter a homeless person. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Secretary Cisneros, this was this was great. Thank you so no, much thank for you. putting the time aside in your busy day to sure. spend a little time with us. Thank and- you for uh, doing this, and, and thank you to the Bush Institute. I'm a great fan of the Bush family. Uh, it is my own sense of bipartisanship to appreciate, really, what um, President Bush did 
H.W. Bush and and then uh, President uh, George Bush as well. What is it, 41 and 43? 41 and 43, yep. Right. I uh, was asked by, by the first President Bush as mayor, called me on a Tuesday afternoon and said, President Reagan has asked me to put together a small working group for Mikhail Gorbachev. This was 1987 or so. And he said, I want you to come up and I want you to be the person who presents on our cities and our system of intergovernmental relations. Can you do it on Thursday? He asked me Tuesday. I was able to get there. And so I met at the Russian embassy with the president, uh, with then Vice President Bush, yeah. Vice President, uh, and and Mrs. Bush, uh, Barbara Bush, and, and, the, and the five or so other people that they had put around the table to, to talk to Gorbachev. That was a very kind thing of him to do. And, uh, and no one could have been more encouraging than Mrs. Bush after that session. Uh, and it wasn't partisan. She said, look, I know you're not a Republican, but we need to have more people saying the kinds of things you're saying. And I'm glad that uh, you're here and responded to this invitation to speak to uh, Gorbachev, President Gorbachev. So uh, that's the kind of people that the Bushes were. They had broad a broad view, and I think uh, subsequent President Bush, George W. Bush, um, also brought great um, sense of, of of understanding about the world uh, that's reflected in this institute and this library. Thanks again to Secretary Cisneros. Anyone interested can learn more about the Bush Institute's work in immigration at www.bushcenter.org immigration. We've also recently released a series of policy recommendations, including one on modernizing America's immigration system. You can read these recommendations at www.bushcenter.org policy. If you enjoyed today's episode and would like to help us spread the word about The Strategist, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the major listening apps. If you're tuning in on a smartphone, tap or swipe over the cover art. You'll find episode notes with helpful information and details you may have missed. The Strategist was produced by Ioana Pappas at the George W. Bush Institute in Dallas, Texas. Thank you for listening. <laughs>